Hello, I'm Douglas Murray and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today I'm joined by Professor Jean Yarbrough to discuss the life and legacy of Thomas Jefferson. Professor Jean Yarbrough is the Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. She has twice received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities. She is the author of American Virtues, Thomas Jefferson on the Character of a Free People, and has edited The Essential Jefferson. Ms. Yarbrough is the author of numerous articles and essays on American political thought and public policy. She serves on the editorial boards of the Review of Politics and Polity and was president of the New England Political Science Association. Today on Uncancelled History, Thomas Jefferson. Welcome, Professor Jean Yarbrough. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start off um, by discussing something which happened in the city we're sitting in very recently. In the fall of last year, uh, the council chamber in New York decided to take down, crate up and wheel through the back door a statue of Thomas Jefferson that had been in City Hall since the 1830s. Um, one of the members of the council said, as it was being wheeled out, that it was necessary to remove Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson does not represent, quote, our values. What do you have to say to this? That is such a cliché. I hear it all the time, um, uh, that anything the left doesn't agree with doesn't represent our values, our democracy, uh, but there, it it is just it's really it's I think a statement more of ignorance because he we this person probably doesn't even know what Thomas Jefferson stands for so how could he know whether he represented our values or not it's true Jefferson was a slaveholder uh, in Virginia most uh, of the gentry were slaveholders and he inherited a fair number of slaves from his father-in-law. Um, and he was also indebted uh, largely because of debts inherited from his father-in-law and then some of his own. And so he was not in a position to sell off his slaves. Uh, in fact, in uh, Virginia at the time that he was writing the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, Virginia slave owners could not emancipate their slaves. Jefferson, in 1769, while we were still part of the uh, British Empire, did recommend uh, right le draft legislation right the first year that he went into the Virginia legislature. He wrote legislation allowing individual slaveholders to emancipate their slaves, but the bill was not enacted by uh, the Virginia legislature. That, um, that claim, that, that sort of assault on Jefferson, seems to have grown apace in recent years, perhaps during this century. Um, before the last 20 years or so, it, was, it would have been uncommon to have, for instance, feared for the fate of statues of Thomas Jefferson. Um, schools and other institutions were named after him. Um, it, it seems to be a, a, a very recent development that, that Thomas Jefferson should be regarded as a figure to cancel. 
Yes, and I think a lot of it has to do with two um, important events. One was Fawn Brody's book in the 1970s, which was her psychoanalytic biography of Jefferson, in which she speculated about uh, these m uh, matters with uh, Sally Hemings. Which will come But on then, uh, and Sally Hemings was the, was the black slave uh, of the uh, Jefferson at Monticello. She was one of the slaves, and she was one of the slaves who went with Jefferson to Paris uh, to look after his young daughter. Uh, so, uh, but what really, I think, uh, uh, intensified the anti-Jefferson barrage in the, uh, uh, in the 1990s was the DNA business. Right. That this is, this this was the first time that people began to speculate seriously that Jefferson had fathered slaves. It's true that going back to Jefferson's own lifetime, there was a terrible uh, vitriolic newspaperman who had published these rumors that there were mulattoes at uh, Monticello who looked an awful lot like Thomas Jefferson, but that wasn't serious and everybody regarded it just for the smear campaign that it was. But once you had the DNA uh, business come to light, then people began to think that Jefferson was not only a slaveholder, but someone who engaged in long-term sexual relations with one of his slaves. And that had never been the case up until uh, the DNA business, and I'll explain that in a moment. But up until that time, the speculation, which Douglas Adair was a major American historian, um, the speculation was that the father of at least some of these children was Jefferson's ward, a young man named Peter Carr. And it's ironic that one of Jefferson's great letters on the moral sense and how you should abide by the moral sense was to Peter Carr. And But the speculation was that the two Carr brothers were probably the um, fathers of Sally Hemings' children. Um, and then when the DNA evidence came out, for the first time, um, uh, they were ruled out as possible uh, fathers of her children. And, the re and the, all of that goes back to Eston Hemings, who was the youngest of Sally's children. And they had DNA evidence from him that um, uh, indicated that he had a specific chromosome that was uh, uh, distinct to the male Jefferson line. Right. This was not DNA from Thomas Jefferson. It was just male Jefferson DNA. Mm. And all that it indicated was that someone in, of lineal descent, a, a male, uh, was the father. And so rather than begin a search to try to see who among all of the Jefferson possibilities could have fathered uh, Sally Hemings' children, people immediately jumped to the conclusion that this was, this was Thomas Jefferson himself who was the father. Now, we're going to come on to some of these details later, but let's row back a moment and, and go to the, uh, let's say, the period before the 
the latest period of revision into Jefferson. Um, why was Jefferson regarded as a great man in America? Why were all these statues put up to him? Why were schools and institutions named after him? Well, because of his greatest contribution to the world was his authorship of the Declaration of Independence. You have Abraham Lincoln in 1860 writing all honor to Thomas Jefferson, who had the foresight to put into a mere revolutionary document, a document that was de declaring independence from the mother country, um, the, the opening two-lined paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, those universal principles that all human beings are born equal and that they have certain inalienable rights that they are endowed with by their creator, uh, and that legitimate government rests on the consent of the governed. And that has been, from the time Jefferson wrote it, an inspiration for peoples all around the world. On top of that, Jefferson was also known for, uh, these are the three um, items which he wanted listed on his gravestone. Uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence, the author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, and the founder of the University of Virginia. Uh, he said nothing about being president of the United States. Being so the third is, president wasn't uh, That was not as important or as noteworthy in his estimation as education, uh, religious freedom, and establishing the overall principles of a liberal society. Now, as you mentioned, and Abraham Lincoln and others mentioned before, um, what Thomas Jefferson added uh, at the founding of America was highly unusual, wasn't it? Uh, by the standards of the time, by the ideas of the time. Um, where did Jefferson's ideas come from? What, what, what had he been reading and imbibing that meant that he, he was able to add in these extraordinary and important lines? Well, he uh, went to William and Mary uh, College in Virginia and, uh, and was... Uh, schooled in moral sense philosophy. So he read a lot of the Scottish thinkers. Um, he also, of course, read John Locke. And he put together his own, I think, particular amalgamation of ideas. They're essentially from John Locke, but he changed Locke in uh, the Second Treatise of Government had spoken of life, liberty, and property. And one of the greatest, well, there are several great changes that Jefferson made in the Declaration of Independence. One was to substitute the pursuit of happiness uh, for Locke's discussion of proper, mention of property. But the pursuit of happiness, I think, and I think most scholars will agree except for Gary Wills, uh, but most scholars um, uh, agree that 
ownership uh, of property is a, is a significant part of the pursuit of happiness. People right. do want to own property, but Jefferson gave it a more capacious understanding mm. uh, so that there were other factors included. Um, and this, I think, is traceable to the whole Western tradition of moral philosophy, where which I teach, mm. And every major moral philosopher is concerned with virtue. And so um, uh, the pursuit of happiness, that happiness in some way has something to do with being um, a, an ethical person, a moral person, and inculcating the virtues that will um, help one to succeed and flourish in, uh, in one's own life. By the standards of his time, of course, um, perhaps by our time as well, Thomas Jefferson was a very well-travelled man. Um, how, how did his travels affect his thought and his influence his, his own philosophy? He went to Paris uh, after um, uh, America declared independence and, uh, and, uh, and was uh, our minister to Paris where he hobnobbed with all of the philosophs and went to their salons. And this is in which years? Uh, this would be uh, 1784, I believe. He left in 1789, just when the revolution was heating up and came back to become the first secretary of state in the Washington administration. He saw the revolution coming in France. He saw the revolution coming and I think one of the reasons why he was so insistent on defending the French Revolution even in its most destructive and bloody uh, period during the Reign of Terror was because he believed that the fate of the uh, American Republic was tied to the success of the French Republic. They were the only republics in the world and they had they had to stick together or hang separately, to paraphrase um, uh, Benjamin Franklin. So there are only two republics at the time, but of course, presumably the, the French example gave him an example of what America could not do. America could not do, but he also thought that they really did have to wipe the slate clean. And he did write some letters that were very intemperate. And I think this is what caused Conor Cruz O'Brien to, um, uh, I think it was in the in the late 80s or 90s, to write a piece that um, uh, uh, called for Jefferson to be toppled from the American pantheon of mm. heroes. Now, by the way, when you say intemperate, intemperate is one of those words that... Uh, uh, what, well, what... he called Jefferson a racist and compared him with Pol Pot and some of the major uh, uh, totalitarian monsters of the 20th century, because he had said, if you had to uh, wipe the slate clean in France and go back to um, Adam and Eve and start all over again, that would, be, that would just be the price that you paid for all of the crimes of the old regime. Mm. Was this a... Um... Uh, a sort of a momentary thought of Jefferson's or 
I think one of the things that happened to Jefferson, if you think about his, uh, his intellectual trajectory, is that he was very influenced by the French philosophes. And I think that they caused him to simplify his own political philosophy. Mm. Um, uh, they, they themselves um, thought it would be a simple matter just to to uh, get rid of the old regime and install a democracy. Mm. And it turned out that there are cultural barriers to this. It's not such an easy business. Mm. And Jefferson, I think, became much more uh, of a radical as a result of his uh, of his years in Paris. He imbibed Rousseau and others. Yes, he did. Uh, students have always asked me, where does Rousseau fit into the American Revolution? And there isn't much evidence that Rousseau did. And but I think that Jefferson, in some of his writings, was influenced by Rousseau because there was that idea of a sort of a new dawn, uh, as you say, if you wipe the slate clean and you can start again. And then, of course, as the French demonstrated in their revolution, you know, and as you say, you can't ever start again from day one. You can't go back to Eden. Mankind doesn't start from it, the beginning. It, it certainly doesn't stop. But there was um, Thomas Paine's uh, expression: uh, "We have it, and we have it within our power to begin the world anew." That's mm. how exciting they thought the democratic revolutions were going to be. And Jefferson himself, in his uh, plans for education, thought that you could. Um, you could engraft a democratic man onto the old aristocratic root. He used an, uh, a horticultural metaphor, which is which I think is apposite, given that he lived at Monticello and was himself a dabbler in seeds. He helped to bring a lot of European seeds back to the United States uh, for cultivation here. He introduced a lot of plants to uh, plants and fruits and vegetables. Now, in, in some ways, of course, you can never start anything anew. And in another sense, what happened in America was new, as Thomas Jefferson knew. Um, um, what was his, 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 his thinking about representation in democratic governance? I mean, that, that was genuinely revolutionary at the time, was it not? That, that every branch of government should be representative of the people was highly unusual, and it raised the question among the founding generation, why is it that we would need, for instance, a bicameral Congress, uh, two houses? It was clear why you would need two houses in Britain, but why would you need two in America if we had only one order, the order of the people? Mm. And so the whole question was resolved by saying that the upper house, the Senate, would represent the states, and the lower house would represent the people in the states. And Jefferson, interestingly, uh, Jefferson, before uh, the Constitutional Convention ended, uh, when he was writing a draft of the of the uh, Constitution for Virginia, and when he was exchanging letters with uh, with James Madison, said that um, 
uh, he didn't trust the people altogether, that they, he wasn't sure that they were wise enough to make good choices. And so he was happy to see that the upper branch of the legislature would be a bit more high-toned. Mm. But his idea was always that the people who were more high-toned should act on behalf of the people rather than have their own distinctive aristocratic interests. So what he wrote to John Adams, for instance, was the best form of government would be a natural aristocracy or a natural aristoi, as he called it, because of course he read Greek. Give us a sense of um, when we just discussed, you know, writing the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, for instance, what was really going on between the various figures involved in this? I mean, what did it look like? Because if one person had been different or one person had uh, drunk from a different well, a lot of this could have been subtly or perhaps not so subtly different, could it yes. not? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was a five-person committee. <laughs> this is a great <laughs> example of why committees don't work, um, uh, put together to draw up uh, a statement of uh, principles, reasons why we were separating from England. And uh, it John Adams had written to a friend and said, we really should let Jefferson do it. He has a happy talent of composition. And so Jefferson took the first stab at it. Um, and it was largely accepted. Uh, but there were, uh, as I said, Jefferson was the one who substituted the pursuit of happiness. But that was already in the Virginia, uh, in Virginia documents. And so it wasn't unusual. And Jefferson always insisted that it was important that no one think that what he was writing were simply his own ideas or that they were brand new. Mm. This was simply the stuff uh, that the American colonists had been educated on. It was, it was the water that they drank. And so these were the fundamental principles that all Americans, at least the ones who, except for the Tories who left and went to New Brunswick, uh, but the ones who stayed in America were, uh, were all uh, uh, in accord with these principles. What Jefferson also included in the Declaration of Independence was a resounding critique of slavery and of uh, King George for uh, encouraging the slave trade and, uh, and slavery in the United States. And in his own draft, he wrote and said he has encouraged um, cruel war against other human beings by holding, uh, a, allowing a market in uh, in human beings, and those uh, that I always teach that because you can see that for Jefferson it was very important to condemn slavery and also to blame the British for right. uh, the slave trade. Um, and and at that time, I mean, and that went out. Uh, uh, South Carolina and Georgia said we won't sign the Declaration of Independence if you keep that paragraph condemning slavery in it. And so the negotiation, as it were, included losing that yes. in order to keep yes, the United but, States... Uh, united, yes. 
And, and that, I think, is very important that Jefferson wanted to put that in the original draft and in the notes on the state of Virginia written in 1782, um, composed in 1782. Uh, and these were queries that uh, the French minister had uh, uh, given to Jefferson to ask him. The French were thinking of coming in on the American side, and they wanted information about the uh, uh, newly independent American states. And so Jefferson was describing uh, slavery. Uh, and there are two places in the notes where he talks about it. One is in uh, query 14, which is usually cited as evidence of Jefferson's um, uh, prejudice and racism with respect to slaves. And then uh, later on, he goes on to talk about the corrupting effect of slavery on American republicanism and to say, um, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Um, and so he knew that slavery was wrong, and he did try in his own draft of the Virginia Constitution uh, to set a date certain for slaves born after that date to be emancipated. It went nowhere in Virginia. So in that sense, Jefferson was a radical for in, in Virginia slaveholding society. And, and just to stick on this point again for a moment, if if he had have insisted, what would have happened? If he had have insisted that his own... Um... He would have had no career. His was the minority position in slaveholding Virginia. You could not emancipate slaves. The slaveholders were against it. And the, and the foundation of the United States, would it have been possible or would it have been something else? Without Jefferson in politics, it would have been, it, I think, our political party system would have developed very differently. Now, there was a sort of um, visionary element to Jefferson always, wasn't there? Yes. I mean, he had a, an extraordinary um, foresightedness of some kind. The, the detail of his wording, the, the care of his wording suggests this. What, where did that come from? Oh, I'll just tell you one thing. He invented a machine that would make copies of his letters. Mm. Uh, sort of, you know, it, make a duplicate at the same time that he was writing it so that he could send off the letter and then also um, keep a letter for his own records. It's part of the reason we have such a, a terrific um, uh, set of his correspondence. Yes, I have to remember that in his spare time uh, he, was he an did inventor. things like this. Yes. He also, uh, and what he, a part of his farsightedness was when he was president of the United States, he acquired the Louisiana Territory and doubled the size of the United States overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had great confidence that, uh, that American republicanism, uh, owing to the principle of federalism, uh, would enable the United States to extend far beyond what uh, a northern federalist thought was possible or desirable. Now, as we've seen, that um, the, the world at the time Thomas Jefferson was thinking about these things um, did not have very many examples of successful representative government uh, everywhere. Um, was oh, oh, the, monarchical and, there was... and, um, and or autocracies. So what gave Jefferson the, the, the belief that this 
form of government could work in America because I mean, it's like doing an experiment with something that hasn't been tried before. It, it certainly had not been tried before because the Roman Republic was the only really great instance of republicanism from uh, history. And he did think that when he got around to thinking about his educational plans, that we should study Greece and Rome and Britain and uh, France and to see how countries become free and how they lose their freedom. Mm. So when Rome became big, it declined. It became, a, it, it was first of all a, a martial republic, a military republic bent on conquest. Mm. And Jefferson thought it was possible in this new world to have an agrarian republic that where everyone could have at least 50 acres and be a self-sufficient farmer. And so part of his optimism was based on a very rosy view of human nature. Um, uh, he rejected the idea of original sin. Um, he himself was a, um, a Unitarian of the most extreme sort. Uh, he started life, uh, his adult life as a de he started his life as an Anglican and then became a deist and then became a Unitarian um, and believed in the benevolent principles of Christ as a, as, a, as a good man and a moral reformer who taught benevolence and sympathy for other human beings. So he had great confidence in human nature, and he also thought that the conditions under which the American Republic was established, that it was going to be agrarian, um, uh, and that it was going to be democratic were all conspiring to um, uh, uh, produce the most, uh, the most democratic republic ever and one that would be successful as long as we didn't build big cities and go all in on commerce and manufacturing I, I and want, banks. Yes, I wanted to get onto that. But um, first, I mean, just to mention, of course, um, his interest in deism, his interest in theology. I mean, he, Jefferson even wrote his own Bible. Yes, he did. I have a copy of it um, uh, uh, that I was given when I was writing my book on Jefferson. What Je This is highly amusing. Uh, he thought it was as easy to, to um, uh, discern the true teachings of Christ as a moral reformer from the evangelists, the four, uh, the writers of the four gospels, as it was to um, uh, distinguish diamonds from a dunghill. He thought that the apostles, the four uh, gospel writers, were really the they were they started the whole ball rolling and put in place uh, all of what he thought were the superstitions that became priestly religion. He, he essentially edited the Bible. He did. He cut it down to forty pages. He took out, uh, it, uh, Jefferson's Bible ends with taking Christ down from the cross, putting him in the tomb, and rolling the stone up to the tomb. End of story. There is no immaculate conception, there is no trinity, there is no resurrection, and there are uh, and many more. I think there are about seven or eight uh, uh, 
fundamental mm -hmm. principles of Christianity that he basically uh, just threw overboard. Let, let's go back to this issue of the agrarian society. Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Jefferson's view of um, what the United States should be it was quite different from, in a way from what the United States has become. Yes, it is. He did write, he wrote this several times and said, when we get piled up in cities as they are in Europe, it's all over. Uh, so here we are sitting in Manhattan in the belly of the beast uh, talking about, uh, you know, what, what are the problems of, what are the problems of big cities? But he, he really preferred agrarian life because he thought that uh, it gave, uh, far farmers had a kind of independence. Um, they grew their own crops. They... Uh, they didn't answer to any boss. He was not thinking of the plantation system when he wrote in uh, the notes on Virginia that uh, we should that agrarian virtue was something that we should cultivate here in the United States. What he meant was the small yeoman farmer, uh, and and at several points in his life, he uh, uh, tried to make provision for anyone who didn't have, I think it was 50 acres, that they should be given 50 acres of farmland. So he wanted to keep America rural. He distrusted banks. He didn't understand banks. He had problems with debt. He himself, personally, yes. yes. And, uh, and he worried about speculators. Right. And, uh, and he saw it just in the cities of Europe, certainly when he was in Paris and when he traveled around in, in Europe. He did go to the south, south of France, um, where I should point out that he saw the ancient temples and this became the inspiration for Monticello. And when we use the term Greek revival architecture, Jefferson was one of the major um, uh, importers of that idea. He was building something at Monticello that was not inspired by um, Roman antiquity. Uh, but Monticello is very much in that style and to get away from the salt boxes of New England. And a deliberate attempt to sort of echo the architecture the of, and the grandeur of an earlier republic. Yes, that there was a reaching for greatness in that, that you should have something that was uh, a, a sort of monumental, a kind of testament to what a free people could do. And, and just, just one other thing on the, on the, on the agrarian, was, was, it, was it just that this was his preference and therefore he thought that's what the ideal situation was for other people too? Did he just think that people shouldn't be in yoke to um, the, the, I don't know, temptations or other things of the great cities? Oh, it... well, yes, because he was in, he was in Paris and he was uh, scandalized. And this is interesting with the Sally Hemings uh, business, too. He was scandalized by uh, the loose morals of the women uh, in Parisian society. Uh, the Saint-Cassette or the various uh, ways in which people were married but were carrying on affairs. He thought that American life was better and its morals were better and the family was happier. 
And I think what he worried about in cities was that that people would, as they did in the early 20th century, come and live in tenements in not far from here in lower Manhattan. That would be unhealthy and where people would be piled up in very tight, close quarters. Um, it's hard to imagine how you could raise families in such conditions. And so the idea of expanding westward and having land that people could come to and farm, uh, you can say in that sense, he and Madison were somewhat um, uh, in disagreement over this because Madison thought we should have a, a commercial republic with lots of different uh, ways of making money, and that was the great point of Federalist 10. But Jefferson thought we should re remain primarily agrarian because he thought there was such a thing as agrarian virtue, mm -hmm. that if you live in the country, you're independent. And Abraham Lincoln in 1860 gave an address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society. So, okay, he's got a ready audience yeah. there. But he, made, he makes the argument very clear that farmers really have to know many things. They have to know how to repair their machinery. They have to know about weather. They have to know about seeds. They have to know about soil. And Jefferson himself writes, this is a marvelous statement. He says, a farmer should know Greek because it was from reading Homer that he learned that you could wet wood and bend it to make a wheel. And he thought this was practical information that farmers could know. But what you see in all of this is this um, slightly idealized, but I think also very real portrait of the many different skills that people who grow up in the country have to learn, as opposed to just having a narrow skill that you perform in a factory. Now, um, before we come on to the, some of the recent um, backlash against Jefferson, the Louisiana Purchase, uh, just return to it for a moment. Um, what was it? Why did it matter so much? And and how was it that Thomas Jefferson was the, the, the leader who managed to make this happen? Uh, well, it happened in 1802, and the Louisiana Territory had been in the possession of the, uh, of the Spanish, and the Spanish were a declining empire, so they were not a real threat to American navigation down the Mississippi, and New Orleans is right at the mouth of the Mississippi. And so this was very important for shipping in the West. Uh, but what happened was that the Spanish sold, the Spanish uh, retroceded the Louisiana Purchase back, to, uh, Louisiana Territory back to the French, and the French were a rising power. So although Jefferson had supported the French in their revolution, once they were now the chief neighbors in the Louisiana Territory, he said, all bets were off. Anyone who inhabits that territory is our enemy or potential enemy. And this, was, this would be a real contest. Uh, this would be a repeat of the French and Indian Wars in which the British had defeated the French, and now the French were back uh, right in the heart of, uh, of the American 
continent. So uh, Napoleon thought that he could he could begin to colonize again, mm. but after his defeat uh, in uh, Santo Domingo, he then uh, decided to concentrate on Europe, and he offered the he offered the Americans and Jefferson was president the opportunity to buy the entire Louisiana territory for a pittance, and Jefferson jumped at it. But because there was nothing in the Constitution that said how we could acquire territory that we did not originally hold. Uh, Jefferson had constitutional scruples over whether we had to amend the Constitution in order to acquire this piece of property. And everybody told him, you know, it's like real estate in a hot market. <laughs> you have to leap on it right then right. and there. You can't, you can't wait around to yeah. uh, pass a constitutional and amendment. Leap. And he did leap. Mm. But he always insisted that it should be ratified after the fact with a constitutional amendment. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And, and nothing ever it's happened. It's fair to say, by the way, isn't it? I mean, that, that although um, other people might compete for this title, I mean, nobody in the end was more significant in creating the United States. Well, yes, I mean, as we know it. yes, and not only that, but then the Lewis and Clark expedition. Right. And when you think of the things that Jefferson did, it wasn't only politics, it wasn't only slavery, it was the Declaration of Independence, it was the University of Virginia, it was um, the Statute for Religious Liberty, it was the Louisiana Purchase, it was the Lewis and Clark Expedition um, going out and um, uh, just exploring areas of the United States where, that would potentially become the United States, uh, that became so important. Uh, Jefferson is critical in those respects. Now, you, the name Sally Hemings has come up a number of times so far. Let's get into that. Um, who, oh, who, who was Sally Hemings uh, and why does she matter? Sally Hemings was the daughter of Betty Hemings, and Betty Hemings was the slave of Jefferson's father-in-law. And when he died, uh, Jefferson inherited Betty, and he inherited Betty's children. So in some sense, Sally Hemings, well, not in some sense, Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Jefferson's wife. Um, and they came to Monticello, and they all had inside jobs. Uh, James Hemings was trained to be a French chef, um, uh, so they were they were well provided for as slaves. Uh, and she was she was only fourteen, I think, when she went with Jefferson to Paris when he was named uh, minister to France. And her job was to look after Jefferson's young daughter. And when Abigail Adams met them when they landed in London, she said, oh, my God, this, this young girl is so, she's so childlike that it's not clear who's, wa who's watching whom. She was such a young, such a, Sally Hemings was so young. But what happened was people began to, argue that she had that Jefferson had started an affair with her when they were in Paris 
and that she'd had a son by Jefferson in Paris. There's no evidence for any of that. Um, uh, and certainly there was one, per there was one slave, uh, Thomas Woodson, who claimed that he was also um, uh, fathered by Thomas Jefferson, and the DNA evidence complete, completely destroyed that possibility. But Sally Hemings had four children, and the youngest was Eston Hemings, the oldest was Madison Hemings, and there were two girls uh, who just disappeared. Uh, they passed into white society, they left, passed into white society, and nobody knows uh, anything further about them. But Eston Hemings' um, uh, DNA, uh, his descendants, their DNA was tested, and they did carry the Jefferson male chromosome. And so it was this DNA business that really suggested for the first time, it ruled out the earlier suspects for who might have been um, Sally Hemings' lover or rapist. Um, uh, and it focused on the direct male descendants, but there were a number of them. Thomas Jefferson had a younger brother who visited him when he was at Monticello, and he had a reputation for light, for enjoying going down into the slave quarters at night and playing his fiddle. One could say he was fiddling around. Uh, he also had a number of adolescent uh, sons himself who also would have attended uh, Jefferson when he was in residence at Monticello. Now, obviously this matters in the contemporary debate because... Well, the third president of the United States is accused of being a rapist, of uh, being a sexual abuser who took advantage of a, a woman who was effectively owned by him. This became an incredibly important and heated political discussion and then a heated scholarly discussion in the 1990s. So how did that come about? Well, it was the DNA um, business that because DNA was then discovered. You DNA, could, you could. I, I guess this was the beginning of when there were Ancestry.com. I mm -hmm. don't know for how long they've been doing that, um, but and suddenly you had DNA evidence, and you had DNA evidence from the male Jefferson line, and you now had Eston Hemings DNA, and that male Jefferson chromosome showed up in the Eston Hemings DNA. And so people leapt, leapt to the conclusion that it was Jefferson and Nature Magazine published an article in 1998, which popularized this newly developing evidence, but it did so irresponsibly and in effect claimed that Jefferson had fathered uh, Sally Hemings' children, when all that the DNA evidence showed was that some male in the Jefferson line had fought, had fathered uh, Sally Hemings' children. Jefferson was, I believe, in his 60s at this time. Uh, and he had, um, Randolph was much younger, and Randolph's sons younger still, uh, you know, adolescents, uh, young men. Uh, so there were other there were other contenders, and nobody really explored that. 
Uh, they just jumped to the conclusion that this was Jefferson and there was a full-scale academic press. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, uh, who is now uh, uh, at Harvard, uh, led this charge. And what was distinctive about Annette Gordon-Reed's argument was that she did not say Jefferson was a rapist. This, we were now into postmodernism. Uh, and it was a narrative. And she speculated that it could have been a love relationship between the two of them, that uh, Jefferson had fallen in love with Sally Hemings and that they cared for each other. And this just gave it a kind of Oprah-esque, modern, romantic twist. This is a long-standing relationship that they had had, and that made people see this in a whole new light. All this was going on at the same time that the Monica Lewinsky business yes. was coming to light. I was going to say 1998, uh, uh, somebody called Jefferson, President, William allegations Jefferson of rape, Clinton. taking advantage of somebody in their employment. This is all connected. And, and that was consensual sex. And what they wanted to say was Jefferson had a slave in his, uh, uh, in his possession, and he was carrying on with her. So really, we shouldn't be all that exercised by what Bill Clinton was doing. So, so I mean, it's an extraordinary thing for a... Um, a it was very convenient. It was convenient for Democrats at the time who wanted to excuse... Bill Clinton. Yes, to uh, to to suddenly now have DNA evidence, and and I was on the Scholars Commission that looked at all this evidence. We spent a very long time examining uh, the evidence, reading the arguments of Annette Gordon Reed and 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 her band of uh, colleagues who were um, pushing this line. Um, and the best we could come up with was that it might have been possible for Jefferson to have, uh, you couldn't rule it out, mm. but you could not make authoritative claims that he was the father, and there were good reasons to think that there were much better contenders for who the paternity uh, claim should be hung around. It's, it's, it's very unusual that... that uh, uh a current day scandal and a historic event should have ended up being so intertwined, isn't it? I mean, and the commission you describe, and effectively, you know, the conclusions became political in the 1990s. Yeah, it was, it, what, it, the reason that it, that I got interested in it was that I was writing a book on Jefferson, but principally I thought nobody cared about his honor. I mean, that you could just make idle accusations against him and say that he had fathered slaves, uh, fathered children with a slave. And I, I just thought if you didn't have if you didn't have real evidence to prove that, you should be a lot more measured in your scholarly judgments. And so it was the for me it was a question of defending Jefferson's honor. And also if it had turned out that he was, mm. I, I then you I I was not I was not hell-bent on refuting it. I just didn't like to see the way in which people jumped to conclusions about it. Um, just to be clear, what was it about Thomas Jefferson, his character, his sense of honor and so on, which might suggest to you that 
you know, the accusation of rape or um, abuse of um, somebody in his care, effectively, should be so unlikely. I mean, what? what well, why does was, it run against he character was, type? He was newly widowed. Lance Banning, who uh, the late and great Lance Banning, who was a major uh, American historian who wrote. Um, uh, on both Jefferson and Madison, um, uh, joined the Scholars Commission, and he star he joined it with the in the on the assumption that it probably was Jefferson, and instead, as he worked through it, he he published something uh, for young historians about how you do research and how you have to be open to changing your mind as you follow the evidence. And what he said, what he, what he, uh, his own view was that Jefferson had the pick of the litter in Parisian society. Women made themselves very available to him. He carried on a flirtation with Mariah Cosway, that he had elegant, educated women. Uh, and it just made no sense that he would want to have uh, uh, hooked up with a, a slave who was not very literate and many, many years younger when he could have had any number of very well-bred uh, um, uh, European women, if if that were his inclination. And as you say at the time, um, he, Jefferson was newly widowed. For, for those reasons other than the DNA, evidence think that there's a strong case of this that it just was out of character for him um uh, and and lance put that uh, wrote about 20 pages uh that was published uh, was widely reprinted the claremont review of books published it uh and it was it was just how do you do it was a kind of historical mystery how do you do how do you follow up on evidence to see what what um, pans out and what doesn't. And it also turned out that a lot of the evidence, or some of the evidence that uh, Annette Gordon-Reed had uh, adduced turned out to have been um, incorrect or mistaken or altered, uh, uh, words dropped out uh, that she just omitted. So there were real questions about the whole narrative, but it is simply the case that uh, what people call the Monticello Mafia, that they simply had a great story, and it also, as a marketing tool for Monticello, was really important because now you could tell the slave side of the story. And so two or three or maybe five years ago, they discovered a room under Monticello and they concocted this theory that this is how Sally Hemings got up into Jefferson's bedroom and this was a secret room that nobody knew about and this was the purpose of the room. And so it, it but one thing that it does is bring up many more uh, black Americans uh, to see Monticello because, because now the story is here was Jefferson. It, this is an early case of miscegenation. Uh, and Jefferson found Sally attractive, and they were lovers. He was not simply someone who was imposing himself, forcing himself 
uh, on a, a slave. This was a love affair. And so when you read the new biographies that have come out, and I reviewed one of them a couple of years ago, as far as I could see, the only new bit of uh, information in this supposedly biography for our time was this whole spinning out of the Jefferson Sally Hemings story of how their love affair began in Paris. And there's and no it, documentation for any of this. There's nothing. There's no. nothing. Jefferson is so confusing in a way to the modern mind because in some ways he's so recognisable. Um, his views on religious liberty are something we now assume is just in the air in a country like America. And then in other ways, he seems hard to understand. I mean, for instance, I mean, what, what would his views, the, the, the Hemings affair aside, um, what would his views have been of, of people like Sally Hemings? How, did he, how would he have regarded slaves? You mean his views slaves? of... of, of well, those are the passages in Query 14 of the Notes on Virginia where he wrote about the eternal monotony of the black face, um, uh, the fact that they couldn't blush, um, uh, that they, that they uh, were just, to his mind, not beautiful people, that they were... Uh, so there was an aesthetic dimension to his, uh, to his, just to his study of black people. Um, he found them ugly, uh, and on top of that, he he did think he made invidious comparisons with ancient slaves and said, but they weren't black. Uh, and he said it may very well be that they are less intelligent. And there's one place in the notes where he speculates that blacks may be the missing link in the evolutionary chain. I'm right in thinking, though, aren't I, that this is partly because there was an unanswered question in Jefferson's time, which is the question of polygenesis and monogenesis. That is, um, people didn't know whether human beings were related to each other. Correct. Or whether the races were from different original stock. And this, this of course, wasn't solved or for decades after Jefferson died. The dispute was very active in his day. Yes. And, and, and there, there is that latish letter to a French uh, um, um, friend of his, um, where he says that he, he is open-minded to the possibility that, for instance, different races can catch up with each other, as it were. Um, is it the Marquis de Chastelux? He says... Yes. Um, he says that he notices that the Native Americans, as he saw them, appeared if they had the same education as, as, as the, the white people, um, became of the same educational standard within about a generation. If I remember right, he says that he doesn't know what the situation will be, um, with regards to black Americans, but he thinks that within a, a couple of generations, it's possible if they have the same opportunities that they might well end up being the same. As, is, this, was a, this was, by the standards of the time, a, a fairly forward-looking, um, uh, almost futuristic uh, idea, was it not? Yes. Um, uh, just to go back to the polygenesis, because it's, it's amusing, it really presented a problem for... Uh, religious people, because did God create a white Adam and Eve, a black Adam and Eve, right. a, 
a, a red Adam and Eve, mm. uh, or was there just one um, Adam and Eve? And so, it, so it gets very much bound up with how you read the Bible. Um, uh, and this uh, Jefferson, Jefferson was far more uh, sympathetic to the Native Americans, partly because the Comte de Buffon was arguing that everything in the New World deteriorated and became worse. Uh, Alexander Hamilton alludes to this in the Federalist Papers, where apparently Buffon had said that even dogs lose their capacity to bark. Uh, when they come to the new world, that everything degenerates. And so, again, it's a question of pride. You want to say that the Native Americans are, um, you know, they're, they're noble specimens. And so Jefferson goes, it really lays it on with a trowel talking about their oratorical skills and so on and so forth. But what he does with slavery is to compare the educated slaves of antiquity with the slaves that um, uh, came from Africa and were in many cases denied any education at all. And so as uh, 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 over the years, people were introducing him to writings and works by um, uh, emancipated blacks and showing that they, you know, that uh, they had Benjamin Banneker had helped to survey Washington D.C. and they were producing um, all sorts of works to show that they were. Um, capable of making all the progress that Jefferson said he hoped they would make. So, so the, the key point there is, is that Jefferson was open to the idea. Yes, he that... was. And but even again, he also said it did. That was in a way beside the point. They were human beings, and therefore they had the same inalienable rights as everyone else: whites, reds, everyone is equal and uh, uh, in their in the possession of their natural rights that didn't mean that he he was very pessimistic about whether you could have a biracial society especially when uh, it seemed impossible that there would ever be a mixing of the races and there would always be that permanent reminder of the history of black people. And so he thought that the best thing for blacks and whites was to emancipate the slaves and then have them set up a country of their own. Uh, and at first, that was part, that was what everyone who was in the abolition society supported, all the different abolition societies. Um, and you would send them back to Africa. And then in later years, he thought maybe Santo Domingo or someplace closer to the United States. And it, up until the end of his life, he wrote to Jared Sparks in 1824, I believe. And he said, I, I, I've got this figured out. We can raise money from the sale of Western lands and we can use that to compensate the slaveholders and also to deport the emancipated slaves, mm. which is ironic for someone who believed in small government that this would have been a major expansion of government, but it was something that he deemed important. He was, um, as we wrap up, um, Jefferson was obviously an extraordinarily progressive thinker for his time. Yes, he was. 
um, and a radical thinker for his time. Um, how do you think we should view him now, uh, since as with everybody from the past, there are things he got right by our modern standards, things he got wrong, things we admire him for, things we, we, we may not admire him for. How, how should we think of Thomas Jefferson? Well, I, I think that he certainly was a, probably the most progressive of all the founders. Uh, he had a belief in the perfectibility of human nature. Uh, he saw really no limits to the perfectibility of human nature. He believed uh, in science and in progress and in uh, the spread of knowledge, which would give us more information about how to govern ourselves. And my own feeling is that we should take the parts of him that are the best parts, that are aspirational, uh, and we should try to live up to those parts. No, no human being is perfect. And in many ways, living in Virginia in the 18th century, Jefferson was a man of his time. Um, uh, he inherited the problem of slavery. He didn't go out and invent it. Uh, he inherited it. And he also wrote the words that would become the principal accusation against him. Uh, he indicted himself when he wrote the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And I think that in itself is something that we should always keep in mind. Uh, he didn't have to do that. And the de those two opening paragraphs are what really made Jefferson's words immortal. And they, they still to this day serve as a rallying cry to oppressed peoples. And that's a lot more than most people can say. And so I think we focus on the things that are aspirational that we still need to try to live up to. And we don't, we don't paper over the things that are questionable or morally repulsive. We look at them. But in the end, you have to, um, uh, with grace, recognize that he was not perfect, and neither are we. It's not our place to be such self-righteous judges. So can we say that Thomas Jefferson does represent our values? Thomas Jefferson helped make our values. Jean Yarbrough, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.